Amen. Well, that was beautiful. Hey, let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning before we open up God's word. Father, we're so grateful uh, just for the ministry of song, for the ministry of lyrics. Lord, reminded through that song of, of how prone I am to wonder. But as we've consistently studied in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, reminded of how steadfast you are in your love towards us. God, where would we be if it weren't for your mercy? Although we're prone to wonder, we recognize from Scripture that you're continually prone to pursue. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the way that you've pursued. Thank you for the way that you've spoken. Thank you for the way that you are faithful. Even when we are faithless, for you cannot deny who you are. Lord, I pray as we turn now to the reading and the preaching of your Scripture that you would enlighten us, enlarge our understanding as to who you are, that as we've sung about, that you would magnify our knowledge about who you are so that we may worship you, not only in song, but with our lives, with every ounce of our lives. Lord, um, I'd also be remiss this morning uh, not to intercede as the body of Christ on behalf of those who are suffering throughout the, the North African Muslim world. Um, seeing the catastrophic earthquake in Morocco and the devastating floods in Libya, Lord, we just ask that you would come back quickly. I can't imagine the suffering and, and just the, the lack of infrastructure there in Libya with civil war happening and how devastating that is for those families. Your word from Isaiah chapter 61 says you comfort all those who mourn. I pray that you would comfort them. And as you do, God, that you would utilize even these catastrophic events to turn people to yourself. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, you guys can go ahead and have a seat for me. Um, hey, y'all can bring your kids first service too. You know, just throwing this out here as we see what's going on over here. Um, hey, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 5. Um, Nehemiah chapter 5. I want to warn you, uh, I think our kids' lesson today is David praising. Somebody shake their hand for me. If, if Yeah, David praising. Okay, so... This section over here, we'll get some worship in about 30 minutes through that wall. I'm just going to remind you of that. Just don't be surprised. But Nehemiah chapter 5, um, if you'll turn with me there, um, we're going to continue in our series of, of the book of Nehemiah. And as you turn there, let me kind of catch you up on a little bit of context. Maybe you're new with us. Maybe you've just been here the last couple of weeks. But, but as a whole, what we've seen in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah is that after 70 years of exile, Right, 70 years of the people of Israel being conquered, the cities being decimated and taken into exile to the Babylonian kingdom and now the Persian kingdom, God, in his steadfast love, has led a return to the land, to the land of Israel, to the city of Jerusalem. And what we've seen is that Ezra was the leader of, of kind of reorienting the people of God back to the worship of God through the word of God. And now, in the book of Nehemiah, we're seeing that Nehemiah is leading the, the building the rebuilding of the city, the actual physical infrastructure of the city of Jerusalem. And over the last two weeks, we were in Nehemiah chapter 4, and we saw that even though there was some serious spiritual warfare resisting and opposing the work of God in this rebuilding, nothing could stop them. It just seems that the people of God under Nehemiah's leadership is, is just, they're a people with a purpose. Nothing can, can stop them in this work of rebuilding. They're overcoming every obstacle. They're enduring every speed bump. Until chapter 5. We get to Nehemiah chapter 5, and what we're going to see is they've actually hit a stumbling block. The work of rebuilding is actually going to be paused for a moment, halted, interrupted. And y'all, this stumbling block that we're going to see in our text today uh, has been around for centuries. 
And if you're anything like me, uh, I bet it's probably alive and well in your life as well this morning. So we're going to read our first portion of our text, Nehemiah chapter uh, 5, verses 1 through 13. And then we'll kind of unpack what this stumbling block is and how we can overcome it. So Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. And I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. Let me just pause for a second. I just love the humanity of Nehemiah. Like he's just angry at what he heard. And and just take some wisdom from Nehemiah, the next sentence says, I took counsel with myself. Okay, I just went on a walk. Yep, cleared my head a little bit. Want to go what's going on. And then he responds. He says, I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But now you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. And they were silent could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing you're, not, you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. All right, that's the first portion of our text. Let's kind of unpack the situation, kind of what's going on here. So what we saw in Nehemiah chapter 4 is that the taunts were ineffective, right? That the threats intended to create confusion and fear for the people of God were ineffective. But here in chapter 5, there's one issue that has created so much stress and so much strife that the rebuilding work on these walls was actually paused. What is it? Money. Money problems. All right, let me go ahead and clear my chest, okay? We as a church preach expositionally. You don't know what that means? just means we take a book of the Bible like Ezra and Nehemiah. We're just going to meticulously walk our way through it as long as it takes to preach that text, okay? So we've been walking through Nehemiah. That does not mean that if you're new here this morning, you're like, oh man, here comes another church just wanting my money, okay? It's not what we're about. I can stand up here with so much integrity to say, actually, as I've been a pastor at this church for a year and two months, I think this is the first sermon we've done on money because the text preaches on money, okay? So Nehemiah chapter 5 is about money problems. But it's, but it's not the way that you would assume, right? If you're in building or construction or engineering, you know that any kind of ma- big-scale, massive project like this is going to come across money problems, right? Your resources start to get drained. Margin gets thin. There's some unexpected costs that begin to emerge. You know, all of this happens. But that's not what's going on here. In terms of the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem, the funding for that project, y'all, was taken care of, was provided for. How do I know that? 
Because from Ezra and Nehemiah, we see that it was provided for by whom? The Persian Empire. The Persians are the one that said, well, you can have all the timber. We're going to give you all the materials. Everything that you need to build this wall is provided for. It wasn't the funding for the project church that was the problem. Instead, it was the way that the people of God viewed and used money that was the problem. It's money problems. That's the subject of today's text. Let's begin by making sure we have a good understanding of the situation. Go back with me to verse 1. Nehemiah records that there was a great outcry by the people. Okay, that's communicating. There is something serious happening. This outcry is happening, and there's three things that are driving this outcry. First, according to verse 2, the people needed grain to feed their families. Pretty reasonable requests, right? They need grain to feed their families. And the reason they don't have grain to feed their families was multifaceted, but one, these guys are working on the walls of Jerusalem, which means they're not working their fields. So the crop is going to be shortened because all hands are on deck to rebuild this wall as fast as possible in a lot of the opposition they're receiving. So they need grain to feed their families. Second reason that this outcry was so great is according to verse 3, there was a famine in the land. And with a famine in the land, the harvest is not going to be as great. The scarcity of crops is going to lead to an increase in prices for grain and crops. And with that increase in prices, we see in verse 3, they're having to mortgage out their fields just to afford the basic necessities like food. All right, the third reason this outcry was so great is taxes. Okay, I'm not going to go too far there. But taxes, right? The Persian king is still requiring their vassal state, which is Israel, to pay taxes. And extra biblical sources say that these taxes could be upward of 40 to 50% of their income. So when you take the decreased labor force, the famine in the land, the increase in taxes, y'all, times are tough for the people of God. But revisit with me in verse 1. Who was this outcry against? It wasn't against the Persian king for taking taxes. Take note, church. It's not against those requiring taxes. It wasn't against God for allowing or creating this famine. You would think that would be a pretty logical conclusion. God, like we're building for you. Why are you hitting us with this famine? It would, no, the outcry wasn't against God. Who was the outcry against? Their own brothers and sisters. Their own people. Church, the, the Jewish brothers and sisters were selling their children, not to the surrounding nations, but they were sending their kids into indentured servitude at the hands of their own people. It's their own brothers and sisters in the faith that are exploiting the poverty that is striking the people of God. And this leads to a great outcry that has effectively paused the work of the rebuilding without a single fiery arrow shot by the enemy, right? Without any war waged by Tobiah and Sanballat of our text, the, the main adversaries, the, the, the building has stopped all because of money problems. Church, this is, this is not uncommon, is it? Probably not unusual. Money is often a reason that the work of God in our lives as a modern-day people of God gets paused, gets halted. Let me give you a few scenarios that are at least true in my life, and maybe they are in yours. You ever spend beyond your means? And that debt begins to pile up to the point where now you're, you're giving towards God or, or gen, living generously is, is just totally inhibited. So the work of God is paused in your life because you're overspending. I, I know of so many people, and I've been tempted myself to say no to a potential career change. 
maybe a relocation, maybe a new job change, all because we can't, we can't make sense of it financially. Although God is leading us in that direction and we sense his spirit pulling us to this change, so many times we say no to that. We halt the work of God because we just can't make the numbers work, right? Maybe we prioritize pleasure or possessions with our money, have no concept of using it to serve people. We have zero dollars in the bank. Or what's mostly true is we have a ton of money in the bank, yet we stress over it so much that fear begins to quench out our faith, right? Isn't it true? It's usually those with so much money that stress over it the most. We stress, and it just quenches our faith. Or on the other end of the spectrum, and we see this all throughout Scripture, we love money so much that a love for God just takes a back seat. Church, money problems tend to hinder the work of God in our lives more than any other thing. But fortunately in our text today, I'm going to give you two, two ways, two points that I see from our text that can help us overcome these money problems that may be pausing the work of God in your life, okay? Here's number one. That is to fear God. Point number one, you, you, you want to use your money in a way that continues to promote the work of God. We have got to walk in the fear of God. You see, according to Nehemiah, at the core of these money problems was a total lack of the fear of God. Go to verse 9 with me in our text. Nehemiah says, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? In essence, what he's saying is, is that if you feared God with your lives, this situation wouldn't be happening. You wouldn't be doing the things that you're doing. Now, what does it mean by the fear of God? All right, in the scriptures, fear of God often means sheer panic. Terror. We covered this in the summer when we talked about the holiness of God. When Isaiah saw the heavens open and he saw the glory of God in Isaiah chapter 6, he hits his face in fear. Okay? God is to be feared. Total panic. That's Isaiah chapter 6. But also in Scripture, when we talk about the fear of God, it can mean a reverential awe. It means that we value who he is, that we see him for who he is, and we just want to live in such a way that walks in light of who he is. We want to live in a manner that is worthy of the God that we serve. And that's the case in this, this text today. Nehemiah is saying, you're, you're not living out of devotion and commitment to the God that we're called to reflect, that we're called to serve. He's saying, in fact, the things that you're doing are contradicting the character of the God that we're called to serve. Which is why he says at the end of verse 9, hey, walk in the fear of God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies. As the people of God, they are to reflect the character of God to the nations around them. He's saying that but the way that you're viewing and using your money is actually providing these taunts of these nations. It's actually dismantling the character of our God. Church, when it comes to how we view and use our money, ought, ought we not to walk in the fear of our God? Ought we use our money in a way that glorifies and honors Him? So how do we do that? Maybe the fear of God is lacking in your finances. How, how do we cultivate some fear of God? Let me give you two subpoints. The first is utilize the scriptures. We've got to let the scriptures instruct us and educate us on our view and our usage of money. And this was lacking for, for several reasons with the people of God in our text today, okay? First, according to scripture, the people of God were to use their resources to provide for the poor not to profit off of the poor. We would think that's basic common sense, right? But all throughout Scripture, God makes it clear. Let me read Leviticus chapter 25. And yeah, I just said Leviticus because it is relevant, okay? Leviticus chapter 25, verse 35. It says, if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, 
you shall support him. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God is what Leviticus says. So if you see a brother or sister near you who is beginning to slip into poverty, don't turn up your nose to them. Don't say, well, if they had a little bit more work ethic, maybe they wouldn't be in the situation they're in. Isn't that what we do? Isn't that our, 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 our reaction? But the scripture is saying, no, 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 actually move towards them with generosity. We should provide for them from scripture. And, and I'm just going to be honest. This is hard for most of us in this room, right? Because we are good, American, capitalistic, loving people. And capitalism creates this thing called the American dream. And, and as much as you want to moan and complain that that doesn't exist anymore, y'all, it does. You can move to this country. You can, you can be born in this country with absolutely nothing. Nothing. And you can work your way in such a way that you can earn something to make something of ourselves. We pride ourselves on this as Americans, right? But what happens is when you build your life that way, you start to turn your nose up to those that don't. And people who are maybe moving towards poverty, we go, well, you know, maybe they should just work a little bit harder. Church, we got to be careful here. We, we need to be careful that our American capitalistic culture is not instructing us or educating us on our view and our use of money. We've got to let the scriptures be our guide here, okay? Now, of course, the scriptures talk about hard work. I know, don't email me, okay? All I'm saying is we've got to let the scriptures be our primary usage or educator on our view of money. Okay, so they're not walking in the fear of the Lord because they were disobedient to scripture and not providing for the poor. But this is where it gets really interesting. They were also walking in rebellion to the scriptures in a much deeper way. They're robbing the poor of provision, but what the scriptures is going to say is they're actually robbing God, all right? Malachi chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn with me to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. So if you get to the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you've gone a little bit too far. And the reason that Malachi is so relevant is this. Just as in the days of Ezra, as Ezra was leading the second wave of the return, God sent two prophets to encourage Ezra and to encourage the people of God. Haggai and Zechariah, okay? Nehemiah's counterpart is Malachi. So as Nehemiah is leading the people to rebuild the city, God sends the prophet to speak on behalf of God in the form of Malachi. So Malachi and Nehemiah are counterparts. They're working together in this work of rebuilding. And in Nehemiah, I mean Malachi chapter 3, verse 7, this is what we read. God speaks through the prophet Malachi and says, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and not, have not kept them. AKA, you continue to disobey the scriptures. So here's an invitation. He says, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? All right, in essence, the people of God going, come on, what have we done wrong this time? So no, uh, from our perspective, all we're doing is building, building the wall. We're doing exactly what you have called us to do. What, what issue do you have with us now? How, how, how shall we return is what they ask. And God goes, well, I'm glad you asked. Verse 8, he says, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. And they go, hang on now, how have we robbed you? God says, in your tithes and in your contributions. In verse 10, he says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. All right, hang in there. Times are tough for the people of God, right? Increased inflation. We, we, got, we got famine. I mean, we got some high taxes. But what Malachi says is, hey, the, the reason there's no food in the storehouse is because of your greed. 
He's saying that if you were to give your tithe, and I'm going to tell you what a tithe is here in just a second. If you were to have been obedient to the scriptures and be filling these storehouses with your tithing, we would have enough food to give out to the poor. Now you're, you're just exacting interest from them. Church, scripture commands a tithe. This is Old Testament. I'm going to talk about New Testament principles here in a moment. But Old Testament giving was commanded by a tithe. Anybody know what the word tithe means? Tenth. It means tenth. They were to give a tenth of their income. And in agrarian society, a tenth of an income means a tenth of their crops, a tenth of their grain, a tenth of their animals. And they were to be given to the priests for three things, okay? First is for the usage of the sacrifices and the temples, operating expenses, right? The second was for the provision of the priests and the Levites, the priestly people. They had no inheritance. They were never given any land. They were to be provided for by God. Their portion was in the Lord and the Lord alone, okay? So the tithes and the offerings were to provide for the priests. Thirdly, it was to be used for the distribution to the poor. So when times get tough and the poor don't have grain, instead of them having to sell their children into indentured servitude, they could go to the temple, they could go to the priests, and, and, and there would be enough to hand out. So the issue here isn't with taxes. This year isn't with inflation. Y'all, the issue here is that the people were withholding their tithes and their offerings. They weren't walking in accordance to Scripture. And the work of God is halted. But who can blame them? Let's get honest for a second. I have four children, which means that we go to the ER regularly. Okay, <laughs> And when that happens, and that month starts to get tighter and tighter financially, where's the first place we tend to go as humans to make ends meet that month. Ah, let me hold back some tithes this week. Maybe I'll hold back my charitable giving this month. It's so consistent. It happens all the time. But y'all, I'm just going to tell you, the scriptures say, don't rob God. Give first. And I'm going to tell you what the promise is on the back end of that. But this is so consistent for us. Often what happens is when time gets tight, we, we hold on to our tithes and to our offerings. Did you know, statistically, that across America, the, the two lowest months for giving, religious giving, is January and June. Not just for our church. I'm talking about statistically. January and June. You know why? Because we overspend in December. Because our kids are worth it. You know? <laughs> and we overspend in May because we want to go on family vacations. Or is anything wrong with Christmas? No. <laughs> no, not at all. Okay, Maybe in the way that we do it. I'm not going to go there. I'll save that for Advent. Is there anything wrong with family vacations? Absolutely not. It's just that we spend in such a way that it begins to restrict what we can do in those following months. We begin to withhold our tithes and our offerings because we've overspent. So I'm going to talk about New Testament principles of giving here in just a second. But listen, if you want to grow in the fear of God, you've got to let the scriptures dictate your view and your use of money. One of the best stories I've ever heard about tithing, just about giving regularly, came from Forbes magazine of all places, okay? They interviewed this guy named Greg Gianforte, who was this creator and CEO and ended up selling his business to Oracle in 2011 for, I don't know, like $1.9 He and I are not the same. Sold it for $1.9 billion, and Forbes magazine wanted to sit down with him to talk about his wealth and talk about how he utilizes his wealth, and he started to talk about tithing. He's a devout follower of Jesus, and this is what he says in Forbes. He says, now listen, one must never tithe with the expectation of divine blessing or reward. You hear that? He's like, we don't tithe to twist God's arm to bless us. That's not the motivation of tithing. But he goes on and says, but I just can't but admit that tithing has brought some incredible benefits to my life. 
It says, first, the decibel level in my life has gone down. And I think that's because every possession speaks to you. Everything you own wants attention. Is that not true? Everything you own wants attention. He said, but when I began to tithe, I found a freedom from my possessions. I don't hold on to things as tightly anymore. Secondly, he says, tithing requires discipline. Right? When that ER visit gets high and, and, and months get tight, tithing requires a discipline. And he says, I begin to see discipline show up unexpectedly in, my, in other areas of my life. I began to tithe, and I was able to rise earlier. I was able to be more patient with people. I was more consistent in my quiet times. Thirdly, he says, the final benefit was by far the biggest. When I began to tithe, I began to see my life as a stewardship, not an ownership. And I'm going to use that to move into point number two. Okay, So we want to walk in the fear of God with our money. Another way we can do that is not just being educated by the scriptures, but also viewing ourselves as stewards. Church, that word is so important for the person in Christ. A steward is someone that just manages the, the household for the head of the household. Right? The owner, the, the head of the household gets to dictate how resources are spent, how resources are used. The manager just collects debts and receipts. The manager just executes it. And according to scripture, when you died, and you were raised to new life in Christ. You were bought with a price. 2 Corinthians 5 says you were to live no longer as your life is your own, but for him who for your sake died. Your life is now given under a stewardship, every piece of it. I'm going to get into that in a second. We can't compartmentalize. But every piece of our life is now lived for Christ, and that includes our finances. And for the people of God in Nehemiah chapter 5 today, y'all, they, they, they weren't living as stewards. They were living as owners. You see, all throughout the Old Testament, God made it very clear that this land, this promised land, this Judah and Jerusalem and the nation of Israel was a gift. Going back to Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23, Scripture says the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. This promised land, church, God is the owner of it, but he knows Right? He knows the sinful heart of mankind. He knows that we are not content being stewards. We want to own it. Right? Feels different. Right? We want to own our stuff. God, God knew that the heart of man was never going to be uh, satisfied with just being a steward. So he says this in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 10. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. Did you hear that? When he brings you into the land to give you, the owner gives he says, and it's going to have great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, take care lest you begin to forget the Lord your God. Man, he saw it coming. He said, you're going to, I'm going to gift you some things. As owner, I'm going to give you some things and you're going to begin to live in them as if you own them and you're going to start enjoying them and all of a sudden you're going to begin to forget God. Y'all, this is what happens. I fear so much this is what we do with our paychecks. We get a little bit of change in our pockets. We start building some little bit of income, start getting some little bit of wealth and we go, that's mine. I've earned that. And what happens when we begin to view ourselves as owners, we'll begin to forget God. The thing about finances though for the Christian is that it's really easy to justify if you're like me, maybe it's just me. Okay, it's just really easy to justify. Here, here's how it goes. All right, here, God, you know what? I go to church every Sunday. You, you own my Sundays. You can have my Sundays. In fact, I serve for CBC Kids, and we all know that's a glorious position, okay? And you go, God, you can have. I, I serve. You can have my Sundays. For many of you, you go, you know what? I signed up for a grow group. 
He even gets my Wednesday nights, which is precious. God, it is pre- our time is precious. I get it. And you go, God, you can have my Wednesdays. And there are other areas of our lives we begin to do this with, right? We start justifying it. We say, God, you own that. You own that. That's what the people of God are doing. They're like, we're building the wall. What do you want, to, what do you want from us? All we're doing is we are living for your purposes. And God goes, hang on now. What about your finances? And as soon as God starts poking around in our finances, what's the first thing we do? That's mine. No, 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 I earned, I earned that. That's mine. But church, let me just remind you, you can't compartmentalize this Christian faith. It doesn't work that way. This is what Jesus Christ says. You cannot serve both God and money. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Jesus is saying it doesn't work that way. You don't own parts of your life, and you can't give him others. Hudson Taylor, the famous missionary, says he is either Lord of all, or he is not Lord at all. It's one or the other, y'all. And our attitude towards our possessions, our attitude towards our money, is a thermometer that measures our health in our relationship with Christ. Did you hear that? And that's just Jesus saying, listen, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. If we have our money, like this, if we view ourselves as owners, what the scriptures say is, is that that's where your heart is. Your heart's with yourself. But where your treasure is, your heart will be also. So I've got to speed up, okay? So if you want to walk in the fear of the Lord, two subpoints. We've got to start viewing ourselves as stewards, and we've got to let the scriptures educate us. That will begin to increase our fear of the Lord. Let me give you one more point. I want us to also follow Nehemiah's example. I want us to fear God, but I want us to follow his example. Turn with me to verse 14 of Nehemiah chapter 5. I'm going to read the remainder of our chapter. It says, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and I acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox, six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all of this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. So remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Man, as I've studied Nehemiah, he has been such an example for me in a myriad of ways. But here in chapter five, y'all, I just think we need to follow his example of generosity. Here lies a generous, generous man. Let me first tell you about how he gave. And I'll I'll run through these pretty quick, okay? First, he he gave sacrificially. And what that means is that it cost him. You see, apparently on top of the Persian tax from Persia, the governors of Judah had every right in the world to tax the local people to cover their own household expenses and to cover their, their ruling and reigning governmental expenses. Former governors did this, according to Nehemiah, and it laid heavy burdens on the people, verse 15. But Nehemiah didn't. What this means is that he forfeited his rights. He sacrificed an opportunity 
for incredible wealth for himself so that he could live a generous lifestyle church. We need to be giving sacrificially. This is a New Testament principle of giving. There's debate around this. I, I just don't believe, I don't see Jesus ever affirming tithe. I don't see, there's a hard and fast rule. You better give 10%. In fact, as a follower of Jesus, I think that's a good benchmark. But what I see in scripture is that we ought to be a people that give sacrificially. Like the church in Acts, who were selling all of their possessions and their properties and bringing the proceeds to the church to distribute to all those in need. Like the lady with the alabaster jar, which was so expensive and broke that thing open so that she could worship her Savior. Like the widow with her might, who gave not out of her wealth, but gave out of her poverty. Y'all, this is sacrificial giving. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3, if you want the New Testament principle. It says, the church gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Church, we must give sacrificially. Secondly, though, in Nehemiah's example, he, he gave bountifully. Okay, that's, that's another one. You see where I'm going with these adverbs, okay? Bountifully. According to verses 17 and 18, Nehemiah was responsible, at the very least, feeding 150 men a day. Parents in the room, come on. I mean... I have four that know where the pantry is, you know, and I think, I think prices have been changing. It's getting tighter and tighter because our kids keep eating. Could you imagine being responsible for the feeding at minimum of 150 a day? He says it was going to require one, axe, one ox, six sheep and birds, and every 10 days he had to order more in abundance of wine. Yo, this was a huge responsibility, yet in verse 18, he did it all at his own expense every day. That, you know what that tells me about Nehemiah? He had a little bit. Wealthy guy. In fact, in the first part of our text, we see that he was buying, on his way back to Jerusalem, he was buying slaves from surrounding nations, Jewish brothers and sisters, to set them free so they could be a part of this work. This guy came from some substance. Maybe it was his cupbearer position in the land of Persia. I'm not sure where he got his wealth, but he is providing for all of this at his own expense. Church, he gave bountifully. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, but whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Y'all, as I get to sit with some of our older patrons in this church, there, there's very few that I ever hear go, you know what? I wish I would have earned more and I wish I would have spent more. You ever done that? You ever sat down with somebody and you hear that? You never hear it. There's this principle here that there's some real blessing in giving bountifully. Thirdly, from Nehemiah's example, he gave willingly. Right? Nobody twisted his arm. In fact, we covered this. He forewent his rights. He had a right to demand some more wealth for himself, but he forfeited all of that because he just gave willingly. For some of you who have been here at our church a long time, I know you have this question. And for some who are new, you may have it. Do you, do you, know, do you ever know why we don't pass a plate here? Maybe you came from a church tradition that made giving pretty visible. You know, I, we don't have that. Uh, in fact, a lot of people have to come up and go, how do I give here? Y'all, that's intentional on our half. Maybe not wise, I don't know. We're gonna trust the Lord with that. But we do that intentionally because I don't want to coerce you into giving. What happens when a plate gets passed is you see somebody put some money and go, Ugh, well, I gotta be better than them, you know? And we start, to, we start to, to guilt you into giving. But y'all, New Testament principles of giving is that should it be willingly. This is an act of worship. God wants your heart, y'all. God wants your heart. He doesn't need your money. Our church does not need your money. We want your heart. We want you to give your heart to the Lord. It's an act of worship, and we need to be willing to give willingly. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. 
Each person must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, but God loves a cheerful giver. So Nehemiah Church, I want you to follow his example. Give sacrificially, give bountifully, give willingly. I think we'd be wise to follow that. But I don't want to disconnect our how to give from the right why to give. Right? What motivated Nehemiah? Let me call attention to that really quick because I want that to be motivating us as well. Verse 15, the text makes it very clear. Nehemiah was motivated to give because he feared God. Right? Contrary to the people around him, Nehemiah actually wanted to live a life for the honor and the glory of God. Verse 15, I did not do so because of the fear of God. You see, Nehemiah knew that the city of Jerusalem was to be a reflection of his God, right? When people look at Jerusalem, they should be able to see the God over Israel. But Nehemiah knew more than anything. When people look at me, they should be able to see God. So what motivated Nehemiah and his generosity was he wanted people to know his God. He feared God. For Nehemiah, Lord was Lord of all, not just Lord at all. Secondly, Nehemiah was motivated by the work of God. In verse 16, he says, I also persevered in the work on this wall and acquired no land. If he would go out and buy his land and start building his own kingdom and his own castle, he knew that's going to distract me. That's going to pull me away from the work and the purposes of God. Church, Nehemiah was so motivated by the calling that God had placed on his life. And to spend and to buy and to acquire in that way would have actually distracted him from the work of God. So fear of God, work of God. Thirdly, Nehemiah was motivated by the people of God. This is from verse 18. He says, now what was prepared at my, my own expense for each day was one ox, six choice sheep, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all of this, I did not demand the food allowance to the governor because the service was too heavy on the people. Nehemiah, did, he never disconnected his love for people from his generosity. He wanted his generosity to reflect his love for people. And then finally, according to verse 19, he, he was motivated by the reward, by the reward of God. He closes with this prayer. He says, remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Church, God sees your giving, right? God sees the way that we live generously or not. And what Nehemiah knew is that he could forego some of the fleeting pleasures that this world has to offer because one day, y'all, there's going to be a great accounting. And when we stand before him, it's just not going to matter. What's going to matter is whether we lived in light of the fear of God or not. That's what Nehemiah knew, according to chapter 5, verse 19. So let me close by, by just reading Jesus' words on that subject of reward. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break and steal. For where your treasure is, church, your heart will be also. I pray that we would live for the reward of heaven. So let me kind of conclude and, and, and wrap all this up well. We are called, just like the people of God here, to be a generous people. And to be a generous people, we've got to walk in the fear of the Lord. Let the scriptures instruct us on how to do that and be stewards, not owners. Secondly, we can walk in the example of Nehemiah, giving sacrificially, giving bountifully, giving willingly, all motivated by a love for God, his work, his people, and ultimately his reward. And let me encourage you as we go into a time of communion here in just a second from Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Okay? So in Malachi chapter 3, Malachi rebukes him. You're robbing God. 
You're robbing God. Then he says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. And then he ends with this incredible promise. He says, bring your full tithe in and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. Now, I thought we weren't supposed to test the Lord, okay? That's not what he means here. We're not talking about the way Satan tested Jesus in the wilderness. What he's saying, God's saying, give me an opportunity to prove to you how faithful I am. That's what this test means. He goes, give your full tithe and give me the opportunity to prove how faithful I am if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. What an incredible promise from Scripture. So here's how we're going to conclude this morning. We're going to actually take communion. So if you're one of our servants kind of passing out, handing out communion, if you don't mind making your way, grabbing those elements, and you guys can go ahead and begin uh, passing those out. Um, Here's what I'd like to do as we take communion. So communion is, is a sacrament ordained by Christ for the church that is for the believer in Jesus Christ. But as we take it this morning, I think it would be prudent for us to just kind of sit, as John Ashley plays, maybe just sit and think about how generous, not just Nehemiah is, but how generous our God is. Like, like you know you can't outgive him, right? Like, let me just remind you really quick about how generous God is. And again, if you're handing out the elements, you guys can go ahead and start passing those out. But just from our text today, the gift of Jesus Christ was sacrificial, right? In the, in the truest form of that word, like Jesus sacrificed his life, and that was of the giving of God. You guys can go ahead and start handing out. Secondly, it was bountiful. The sacrifice of Christ was able to save to the uttermost. Thirdly, it was willful. Jesus says, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And it was all motivated by the right things. The gift of Jesus Christ was motivated by a love for God. As he was troubled in soul and spirit, he says, Father, glorify thy name. He wanted God's glory to be made known. It was motivated by a love for God's purposes. He said, for this purpose, I have come for this hour. It was motivated by a love for people. God demonstrated his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And ultimately, it was motivated by his reward. Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. Church, I just want you to reflect. As you take these elements, as John Ashley plays, I just want you to reflect on how great a giver our God is. And then in a moment, I'll come back up and take us through the leading of this meal.